Uh, it's an amazing memoir. It's uh, funny, touching, full of love. It's a beautiful piece of work and written by a wonderful human being who I'm going to introduce to you now. Actor, writer, time traveler, ma maestro of the silly. Please welcome Mr. Matt Lucas. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you to the lady for standing up there. Thank you. Why did no one else stand up? <laughs> why did no one else stand up? See, everyone else would say, why did you stand up? I say, why did no one else stand up? Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. The check is in the post. Thank you Hello. very much, sir. Thank you. Hello. So, I... Yes. Saw on the quote on the back, which is a, a lovely quote from Russell T. Davis, saying a book filled with love, which is, which is true. It's a beautifully oh. written piece of work. Oh, thank you. And um, yes, I've just finished it this morning, and I recommend it to all of you, of course. And I was, so do I, that's I mean, for sure. It's a really good, good Christmas present. Good. Really good Christmas good. present. I was going to do... Have you just arrived? <laughs> Welcome. We basically, we all stood up and said something about <laughs> ourselves, so... Uh, just over to you, no, gone. I'm telekinetic, I've moved him. It's fine. Sorry, yes. I was going to do. I wasn't face you. Okay, thank you. you. I can face you. Yes. I wasn't going to do like an A to Z and do, and do M for your name in the book, but that's the middle of the book, which is a lovely little conceit in there, which you can actually download a song. Thank as you. Well, yeah. Which so is lovely. This, thank you. Yeah, so this is my autobiography, and, um, and I've just written it as an A to Z just to avoid. Um, starting it with, you know, I was born in this hospital there, because no one's bothered. And hello, how are you? Come in, come in. I can just see a hat, a very walking along. Oh, there you go. Been whipped and off. Yeah. So I've written. So, so it's my. Auto it is my autobiography, and um, uh, and but I've written it not strictly chronologically, mm. but I have. Um, but uh, oh, what's happened? Is there a kerfuffle already? <laughs> What happened? Were you filming it? No, no. Oh, I didn't know either. No, don't take a picture. Security reasons. Social security reasons. No, that's an old, that's an old one. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I thought well, I'll write this. It's not strictly chronological because mm. I didn't want it to be too dull at the beginning. So it sort of starts when I'm 12 um, and it darts about a bit. But it is, it is my autobiography and it is loosely chronological. And, uh, and as you say, you, you, yeah. are, you have been time travelling recently, so you're allowed to do that, aren't you? you yes, I'm allowed to yeah. do that. Yeah. And yeah. I write all about uh, being in Doctor Who in, in um, tea for the TARDIS. And uh, yeah, and so it's all in their little Britain and Come Fly With Me and Alice in Wonderland and all sorts. The, 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 yeah. the thing you write about, first of all, when you were 12 is a show uh, called The Roman Invasion of... Ramsbottom. That's right, yeah. Where you play Aquiton Stanley's for the yeah. A, right? I was in a, so in a, this is the school play I did when I was, no, 13 years old, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So talk about that play, because that's intrigues me. What, the, the note you gave yourself was you were going to play it like Brian Glover. Yes, but I, do, I, don't, I don't think uh, I really did. I think what happened was I auditioned for the school play when I was 12 and I didn't get in, which that's where the book begins, um, of me running up to the uh, notice board at school to see who I'd be playing, only to discover that I wasn't playing anyone at all. And I had to make do with being an usher, which is actually what a lot of actors do when they're not working. And, and, um, and I, was, I was very upset, but the next year I auditioned and I got a role in the play, and um, the monster was unleashed, because uh, it's like I, I didn't really know how to be part of a team uh, at that <laughs> age. 
and it's like I forgot anybody else was on stage and I just kind of abandoned all the script and I just did what I wanted to do. And the, um, uh, the, the director came backstage and he was ever so sweet. He said, oh, uh, Matt, brilliant tonight, really good. Um, just one little uh, tip. It's like you're going 85 miles an hour and you really only need to go 80, which was <laughs> completely lost on me. And I thought, okay, got to go 80 miles an hour, okay. And, uh, and so it took me a little while to learn that other people exist and they're also on stage. Yeah. And, and so that chapter is about the fact that I was selected from that play to go and be in a, in a production at the Edinburgh Festival at 13 uh, in the same play with the National Youth Music Theatre. Mm. And I wasn't very popular in the company, you know. I didn't really, uh, know, as I say, know how to be part of a company, you know. And then we go back after that to when I was uh, four years old. And we understand a little bit in chapter B for baldness about why I became a bit isolated mm. and why I needed to be on stage and what it meant to me. Because when I was six years old, um, all my hair fell out. And it was really weird. It was over the course of a summer. And um, uh, I woke up over the course of two or three months just to find hair on my pillow every day. And we didn't really know why. And then it grew back, and then it fell out again. And that was it. It really was just gone, and it's still obviously gone. Although I'm now at the age where I, it would have fallen out anyway by now. <laughs> um, so uh, don't laugh at my misfortune. But, so and, uh, oh, cackling. She's, she's evil. You, you mentioned going to Edinburgh, and, and one, one of the actors up there uh, who you worked with was Jude Law. Yeah, well, Jude Law was in the other... Jude Law and Johnny Lee Miller were in another play in the same company, so they used to sleep in the room next door, yeah. But did, did you, over that course of, of the Edinburgh Fringe, actually sort of, you know, become a team player, or were you always playing at, at 85 miles an hour? I think it's funny, because I did another play the next year in the West End. I, I went to open auditions for a West End play when I was 14, and I got a job, and, and that's where I started to learn... started to learn what it was about, mm. yeah. Yeah, it took a little while. It was... It was more in response to, uh, to that, yeah, yeah. But it was, it, was, it was, like I say, I'd had this weird event in my childhood. Of, and, and everybody used to, everyone in my town knew me because I was the kid with no hair. And so, and so I was used to getting attention and I wanted to put that attention to good use and thought, well, I don't just want to be defined by this. Mm. I want to use it. So the idea of being an actor and being able to transform myself and play other characters was appealing to me. And to show off and get some kind of validation and vindication was, was uh, yeah, to me, felt like a more positive way to, to use this strange situation that I was in. Yeah, yeah. And A, a could also be for Arsenal, of course, and you're wearing the uh, It could be, the but there. I kind um, of, I write a, just a couple of pages about Arsenal. not enough for me, Matt, really. Not for you. So, no. You know, the book is just two or three pages out of the whole book is about that, because I figured that that's too much for some people and not enough for others. <laughs> And so I figure maybe that's a separate book that yeah, I is, will... Is that uh, an empty promise? Or, uh, that'd be a great book. I'd buy that. Well, I don't know. <coughs> There's so much written about football, isn't there? Mm. Um, maybe one day. But uh, like I say, sometimes it's a bit like... Sometimes people go, oh, I haven't seen you. Uh, you're not on TV anymore. It's the only job you do this where people go, oh, I don't see you on TV anymore. <laughs> and uh, you go, oh, thanks for telling me. I'm, I've, I've just <laughs> and God, there's that cackle again. She's evil. Um, and, uh, and, so, and so sometimes people, you say, well, I'm, actually, I'm, I've just been in Doctor Who for a year. And people go, oh, don't watch Doctor Who. And they just make it really clear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't watch Doctor Who. 
And that's it. And that is a, that's the end of that conversation. Yeah. And it's, uh, saying you're a football fan is a bit like that. Oh, I don't watch football. And that's a very clear way of saying to somebody, not only do I not watch football, but we are not talking about football. <laughs> and so... And so I write about a couple of personal experiences yeah. to me. And I do write, actually, um, in a bit more length, about having this job when I was 18 years old. Um, I said to my mum, I want to take a year out uh, in, between, uh, going, in between finishing A-levels and going to university. Um, I'd like to take a year out. And unlike my friends who were sort of going to India, you know, to find themselves, um, uh, I, I wanted to do stand-up comedy to try that. And my mum said, well, that's all well and good, but you need to bring some money into the house because she had two, maybe even three jobs at that stage, and it was me and her living together. So I got this job working for Chelsea Football Club, and obviously being an Arsenal fan, I used to wear my <laughs> Arsenal top underneath. Um, and I was assistant manager of the club shop at Chelsea. So um, I do talk a little bit more about football in bit. that chapter. And yeah. there's one mention, we're going to move on from last one, I know, because it's a personal thing, but you mentioned briefly, you met uh, one of my heroes, Rocky, David Rocky Rocast. Yeah, I met, I met him. So, for people who don't know, uh, uh, Rocky, David Rocast, was a real icon uh, amongst Arsenal supporters. He was uh, a great footballer that maybe didn't quite fulfil his potential, um, uh, and he died very young uh, from leukaemia, I believe, in, in at 33 maybe, uh, 34. And he and he is remembered amongst those of us who, who were fortunate enough to see him play as 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 a brilliant player. So yeah, I, I met him in a bar once. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah. So that, again, it's just a little memory in there for that Arsenal fans will understand, and the rest of you will go, oh, I don't follow football. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I suppose in terms of comedy, certainly from my point of view, it was uh, Sir Bernard was the first thing that we saw you um, flourish as. Yeah. How, how did he come about, that character? Well, I used to be doing this kind of youth theatre. I was in the National Youth Theatre and the National Youth Music Theatre because, again, like I say, I had this hunger to not just be known for having no hair. I wanted to, to sort of... <coughs> express myself in a more positive way than, than just that. And, um, and so I came across quite a lot of sort of fruity types, you know, working in the theatre. It's a wonderful show, not selling. And, uh, you know, they're sort of, they're wonderful, wonderful. She's on, um, well, she's doing it, she's supposed to do eight shows a week, she actually only does four because she doesn't always turn up. Ticket's still available at all prices. And so, it's, uh, you know, those slightly catty actors. So I, I created this character called Sir Bernard, who was this, you know, it was a bit more pronounced, you know. And I, and I was 18 and I would walk on stage as this character on this stand-up comedy circuit that was full of people who, who performed as themselves, and they'd have a cigarette in one hand, and a, you know, when you could smoke inside, and a pint mm -hmm. in the other, and mm -hmm. they'd go, you know what it's like, fellas, you know, lads, run with me on this, lads, you know, you're out, you're with your girlfriend, <laughs> and, and, and then I would walk on, and I'd go, Greasy! <laughs> wonderful to be here, wonderful to see so many young people here tonight. I adore young people. I do, I try and stay young myself. I do, I even entered the Young Musician of the Year the other day. Yeah, he was furious <laughs> no 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 so um so i do these kind of ropey old jokes and i used to wear a wig right so when uh so my hair fell out when i was six but i was getting ready to go to secondary school and my parents thought maybe i would fit in a little bit better mm. if i wore a wig so um i was assessed 
And we tried loads of things to, to, to make my hair grow back. I'd had acupuncture. There's a strange story about that in the book. Um, I tried uh, all different homeopathic remedies, uh, and nothing had really worked. And so I got assessed, and I, and, I, and I was given this wig, and I went to have it fitted. And when I arrived, uh, I became aware that they didn't make wigs for kids. And so I was given a woman's <laughs> wig. Thank you again for laughing at my pain. And, uh, and it was huge. And it was just like I had this huge like, beehive, virtually, this kind of bouffant on my head. And, and I wore it uh, at primary school in the final term there, just to kind of test it out. And it didn't look right, because I don't really have eyebrows. So it just, it just looked like an ill-fitting hat. Mm. And, um, and I wore it at school, and I went in on the first day of school and, uh, of this term, and one of the rough lads from the year above me just ran past me, ripped it off my head, and threw it in a puddle. And really, that was the best thing anyone could do, you know, in a way. And so I didn't wear that wig at secondary school, so it just sort of sat in my cupboard. Um, and so when I did the stand-up comedy, mm. I wore the wig. And so I would just have it on my head. And even though I looked a bit odd because I didn't have eyebrows, I don't think anybody would have suspected on an 18-year-old kid that they're wearing a wig. Um, and and I kind of, I obviously, I, I got a bit bigger, so the wig fitted me a bit better now. And it was real hair. And, um, and then halfway through the show, I just sort of scratched my head and the wig would really move and I just carry on as if nothing had happened <laughs> and people would sort of gasp and it was the one thing that it, when I did my set and it was going down really badly which invariably <laughs> it did it was the one thing that I usually got a laugh from yeah. you know and if that didn't get a laugh I knew I was screwed either well that's it I'm really going down the pan tonight and you say in the book that you you feel that you've not really done your penance as an actor having done sort of you know sort of uh, rep or or sort of gone to drama school even no but you, but you did you paid your penance doing the stand-up routine, the, the circuit, certainly working up the creek, for example, which Ugh. is a notorious venue. Yeah. Is that still open, do you know? No. Is it still good? Is it? Oh, is it? Up the okay. creek's open. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I did four and a half years uh, of stand-up on the circuit, mm. yeah, and it was tough. And actually, what, what finished my stand-up career was um, kind of good fortune, in a way, because after five weeks of doing stand-up, I was uh, uh, doing this gig, and it was unpaid, because I, you know, I wasn't ready to be paid yet, doing this set, um, this is 25 years ago, and Bob Mortimer was in the audience, and mm. Reeves and Mortimer were my idols. And going back a couple of years earlier, I'd met David Walliams in the National Youth Theatre, and we'd bonded over a shared love of Vic and Bob and Laurel and Hardy. And Bob Mortimer was in the audience. <coughs> and he came up to me and said, afterwards it would be great to work with you in some way and that for me was it's like being a Beatles fan and having Lennon and McCartney you know having one of them at your gig I mean it was the most extraordinary thing and uh, and so I ended up working with them and and some of you will remember that I was in this show shooting stars and playing this uh, giant baby and what happened was that because shooting stars was a success when I would go out and do that Saberna character on the circuit people would be yelling, what are the scores, George Dawes, from Shooting Stars. Yeah. And so, in the end, I kind of stopped doing stand-up for that reason, mm. because I didn't really want to do a George Dawes set, and I didn't want to appear as myself. I just wanted to do Sir Bernard, but I couldn't really do Sir Bernard anymore. And I kind of thought, oh, well, that's probably the end of that character. But when, uh, when we did Little Britain, we, we snuck him in for a couple of sketches in the first <laughs> series. So he still sort of exists.
And he saw there was Pompadour as well in a weird way. Yeah, so I did this show uh, two or three years ago. I love that show. Thank you. Please bring that back if the BBC think kindly of it. I mean, I know. They think kindly of it, but they said that uh, they basically, I did this series called Pompidou, which is my favourite thing I've ever done, but it's, it is basically a kids' show, mm. and the budgets in kids' TV are, are, are much, much smaller than the budgets elsewhere. And so they said, well, if you want to do another series, we'll give you, you know, this small amount. And so I just think the practicality of getting that show made would be going to every broadcaster in the world and getting a tenner off each one of them. <laughs> I just don't know if we'd, if we'd pull it off. But I would love to bring back that character one day because it's my favourite thing I've ever done. It was, a, it was like a kid's show, but it was like a live-action cartoon with just gibberish, uh, gobbledygook, a bit like Mr Bean, a sort of Mr Bean meets Pingu, almost. <laughs> um, and it's on Netflix. It's uh, and, and yeah, there are, there are some uh, commonalities Moments between Sir yeah, Bernard yeah. and... I mean, for me, it always Pompidou. reminded me, Matt, of, of those lovely old uh, two Ronnies things like um, uh, The Picnic and uh, By the Sea. By the Sea, sort of yeah. yeah. Non-dialogue, but, but vocal, you know, really loud, silent comedy, if that makes sense. Yeah, loud, right. silent comedy. Yeah. I like that phrase. <laughs> um, yeah, it's my, like I say, it's my favourite thing I've done, and I'm really glad I got the chance to do it, and it exists People can still see it. And I did recently have a conversation with a broadcaster about the possibility of doing something with that character again. So it's, it, there's, there's, a, there's a possibility, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And just to leave Bernard aside, just for but Sir the Bernard. last thing, bless his heart. But the, the great thing about, I think that what really made that character sing on the circuit was when you would have those moments of heckles or non-heckles and you would revert into that sort of wild cockney scream that you would put people down. Yeah, so when I started out, uh, I, I really was bad. <laughs> And uh, I, I saw you. You were great. I bless you. Thank you. I wasn't. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I would die a death on stage. You know they say when you go down badly, they call it dying. And and it was it was bad. You know. And there's something about about when your gig goes down badly, but everyone can sort of see what you were trying to do. You know. But nobody could see what I was trying to do. <laughs> it was just such a strange, incongruous presence on yeah. the circuit which was a lot of political comedians a lot of kind of uh sexual comedy and then i was doing this really strange uh, uh act especially being an 18 year old it was it was it was so odd um and i used to get heckled a lot and i didn't really know what to do to because there was this there's this thing which is you don't steal other people's material on the circuit right so there's a few rules about being a stand-up on the alternative comedy circuit that i was on you don't steal anyone else's material you don't do sexist or racist or homophobic material and uh, and you don't slag off other comedians on the circuit but that's more like an off-stage rule mm. i guess um and uh there's one exception to this rule about not using other people's material, which is if you get a heckle, you're allowed to use a heckle put-down that you've heard another comedian use that maybe got them out of a spot, and nobody minds. There's a kind of, you know what, if you're on stage and you're getting it and you need to just pull a line that you've heard someone else use in that context, do it. So there were a few standard lines that people used to use, like uh, somebody would heckle you and you'd say, uh, oh, it's a shame when cousins marry. Or, um, uh, I remember my first pint, uh, <laughs> don't drink on an empty head, ladies and gentlemen. And just a few of these kind of lines that people sort of did, and they were like get-out-of-jail cards, really, and nobody minded who used what. And I couldn't really use them as my character, they just didn't fit mm. Sir Bernard. So what I started to do was I thought, sod this, if they're heckling me, I'll heckle them. So I used to heckle the audience from my act. 
So <coughs> I'm not going to, I'm going to, I should maybe take my microphone off to do this. It's a bit this. loud, yeah. It's a bit loud. <laughs> or can you just, can you dip, can you turn my mic off? Turn my mic off for the moment, turn it off. And I used to go, good evening, good evening. Why don't you shut up? <laughs> good evening, like that. And you can turn it up again now. <laughs> and, and so I would heckle the audience back. And if they heckled me, or even if they didn't heckle me, I would just scream blue murder at them. And then everyone was too afraid to heckle me. So it was great. <laughs> I still wasn't funny, but yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Little Britain, which obviously was a, a worldwide, still is a worldwide comedy phenomenon. Um, did you, um, this is a, a hard question to ask, but did, did it ever seem to be out of your control in a way, that it became so big, that the, the, the merchandise and the worldwide interest in it, was, was it uh, it did get Yeah, it sort of, yeah, I think it took us by surprise. Mm. I mean, we thought, we wrote this TV script, and me and David had been working together for a while, and we wrote this TV script, and we couldn't, we didn't have any interest from the, the channel heads, you know, they, 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 it wasn't for them. And, uh, and we, did it, we managed to do it on radio, uh, and it was successful enough on radio that we somehow managed to get a TV pilot. But we just thought, oh, I thought, it was, I thought something was up when I watched the pilot of the TV version of Little Britain. When I, when I saw the TV pilot, I went to the edit one day, and um, I'd, had a, I'd, I'd had a disastrous night. I've never told this story before. I don't know if I should tell it. I had had a disastrous night where I'd gone, I was just, just coming out around that time. I'd just been coming out in the year or two, and I'd gone to... I'm going to regret <laughs> telling this story. I'd gone to um, uh, a, a nightclub, and I'd met a guy, and, and, and I never, ever did this, ever, but he ended up coming back to my place. And I was like, oh, this is, never happens to me. And I was quite happy. And then he had food poisoning, or alcohol poisoning, and he threw up over my entire flat. And I spent the whole night, like, cleaning up. And we even took my mattress, and, like, at five in the morning, we were taking it down to a skip. And it was just a disaster. I'd had the most disastrous <laughs> night. I hadn't even got a kiss, anything. Maybe it was just to get out of kissing me, I don't know. But it, we'd, I'd had this disastrous, disastrous night of... And I, I, I could see the funny side to some extent, but it was just like, I hadn't slept. And... I went into the edit of Little Britain, and I was just feeling like, oh my God. And I watched the first half-hour cut of the pilot, mm. and I sat there, and you really don't know what you've got until you watch something back. You've no idea. And I watched it, and I went, I'm going to be able to buy a new mattress. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got something here. I think I might even be able to buy a new flat one day, because uh, I watched the pilot, and, I th and it's a bit of trumpet blowing, and I'm, and I'm sorry about this, but usually when you saw a comedy sketch show, somebody would have a character or maybe two characters. You go, oh, I, li oh, I like that one, I like that one. And you sort of wouldn't really remember the rest. Mm. And I watched the pilot and I went, ooh, we've got Marjorie Dawes, we've got the only gay in the village, we've got the rubbish transvestite, we've got uh, the hypnotist, we've got Vicky Pollard, we've got the guy who's in love with his friend's grandmother, we've got Sebastian, the political guy. And I just suddenly thought, we've got about eight We've got about eight in it, just in this pilot. And this was before we'd even thought up Lou and Andy. And it was before, excuse me, Bubbles or Bitty or any, or any of those other ones that came later. And I just, I remember watching the pilot and going, ooh, we might be onto something here. But it was not guaranteed that we'd get a commission off that pilot. And we really had to lobby the controller of BBC Two because we went to this meeting and she said to us, she said, look, I've just cancelled Big Train. And if I commission your show, 
I have to justify to them why I've cancelled their show. And Big Train had run two or three series mm -hmm. and was great. And that's when we realised, ah, that's why it's really hard to get on TV because there isn't that much money, there aren't that many slots, and we are, we're taking a slot away from someone else. But, um, you know, we were, we were very fortunate that that slot was available. But, I, yeah, it got a little bit out of control, I guess. It was weird. It happened earlier than I thought it might. Even when the first series was only playing on BBC Three, I noticed cartoons in the sun and mm. references in Richard Littlejohn's column and things like that to No But Yeah But or... And you were getting the biggest audiences BBC Three had ever had at that point. Yeah, and then, and, then, and then big audiences on BBC One mm. and uh, it would transfer to BBC Two and then BBC One. Yeah. yeah, and it really took us by surprise. And we were in that, you know, it's... There's not many shows left where people come together and watch. I mean, Mrs. Brown's Boys is one of them, comedy-wise. The Bake Off. There's a few, but um, yeah, we were we just we, we were lucky. And I tell you, one of the reasons we were really lucky is because The Office had been huge, mm. and the consequence of The Office being huge, it was also utterly brilliant. I think it was the best sitcom I'd seen since Alan Partridge, or maybe even Forty Towers. I mean, it was stunning, um, and because it was so popular. Everybody was trying to make The Office themselves again, you know? Yeah. Everybody was doing... And I also actually should mention The Royal Family, which was also brilliant. And, and probably The Office owes something to The Royal Family in terms mm. of that naturalistic, realistic... These are people we know. This is an intimate, single-camera portrait of people. And no laughter track and no audience present during the recording. And yeah. it being a bit more filmic. And so everybody was trying to make The Office and nobody was trying to make the sort of show that we were trying to make. So we weren't really competing with anyone. It wasn't like there was another big sketch show on TV. Mm -hmm. so, so we were really shameless in our comedy. We just said, we don't care, we'll dress up as women, we'll dress up as other races, we'll put on silly outlandish costumes, we'll do silly voices, all the things that the other comedy shows at that time were not doing. And how, how soon after the first episodes were going out that you were getting the catchphrases back at you? Because that's the first sign, isn't um, it? It's I, would, I, would, I would say it was before the end of the broadcast of the first series. It, mm -hmm. Again, we, another way we were lucky was that BBC Three was a brand new channel. Mm -hmm. In fact, our pilot was on the first ever night of BBC Three. So BBC Three did a big marketing push behind us. They didn't have that much else to show, so they just kept repeating our <laughs> show. So we just got lucky. We just got, we had a lot, I mean, I think the show was good enough that people liked it, mm. or some people, enough people, but we were also just lucky, and that is, that is the thing, you know, a new channel uh, that hadn't yet defined itself. So now if you go on BBC Three and have the kind of ratings that we had in our first run, you probably wouldn't be considered a hit, but there was nothing to compare us to. Mm. So, um, yeah, we were, we, were, we were lucky. So talk to me about um, Lou and Andy. Where do they come from? Well... Oh, yeah. So Lou and Andy came. In fact, it's in the book. Uh, me and David, before we did Little Britain, we did this series called Rock Profile, which was on uh, cable TV. And we played lots of different pop stars uh, in the show. And Jamie Theakston would interview us each week. And our, our, our take was that we would never really try and do accurate impressions of the pop stars because we felt there were really good impressionists around and we didn't mm. really think we were good impressionists. So we tried to do these slightly more almost interpretive, esoteric impressions of pop stars, right? So when we looked at, say, the Bee Gees, we thought that Barry Gibb was 
terrifying, right? <laughs> and that he was probably in charge of the other two Bee Gees. <laughs> like, he's the older brother, and we felt he was like the bossy one. So we made him a lion, because lions are scary. <laughs> They're kings of the jungle. So we had the three Bee Gees on a sofa, dressed as the Bee Gees, but he had um, lion's paws, and he had a tail that would occasionally swat a fly. And... When we did, I'm trying to think who else we did, uh, Steps, do you remember Steps? Yeah. We did the two boys from Steps, and they always struck me like they'd had too much E210. You know Tartrazine? <laughs> it just makes you hyperactive. <laughs> I got banned from Orange Squash. They just struck me as hyperactive little children. So we did them as little kids. Mm. And, um, and so we would, in, you know, and we did, uh, it, we did a spin-off, a spin-off series of sketches of Rock Profile for... A Ralph Little, for the Ralph Little show, which was on BBC Choice, uh, and it was a chat show, and he had these sketches, and we would do them, and I played Macy Gray, and I played Charlotte Church, <laughs> and David played Eminem, I mean, it was crazy, and David played Lou Reed, and uh, so that's Lou, and he played Lou Reed, and then I was just his mate, Andy Warhol, who was, <laughs> like, lodging, um, and uh, David had been doing this funny Lou Reed voice for years, like this. And we'd done this on Paramount Comedy Channel. He'd done this strange character that looked mm -hmm. like Lou Reed, but had nothing to do with it. But now he was playing Lou Reed. Hello there, I am Lou Reed. <laughs> and uh, I sing the songs. I don't know if you've heard the songs. I sing them. <laughs> and so it was just really weird. Like, I don't know why it was, it was just amusing us. And uh, I played his mate Andy. <laughs> and... Um, who, who was a great artist but was just an idiot and didn't even understand his own art or how he painted or why. And, and, and Lou looked after Andy and he would say, uh, yeah, I'm going out, what do you want for lunch? And I'd go, Chippy. He'd go, OK, I'll go to Chippy, but then you can't have Chippy for, the, for, for dinner. Yeah, no. So, what do you want for dinner? Chippy. OK, <laughs> but then what are you going to have for lunch? Crisps. No. And it was just, they, they just had this really weird interchange. And when we came to writing Little Britain, we just remembered that fun rhythm of David going, no, what are you going to have for your lunch? Chippy. And we just, we were just, those characters just came back to us. And then Lou and Andy, Lou was the carer and Andy was in the wheelchair. And the first draft we wrote was pretty simple, that Andy would want something and, but he wouldn't ever really think about the choices he'd make. So, um, you know, which book do you want? That one. And he just wouldn't... Yeah, that one. He just wasn't even looking, didn't care. And then we read the sketches out to Mavanwi Moore, who was our producer, and Mark Gatiss, who was our script editor um, from, for Series 1. And people know Mark from The League of Gentlemen, and he co-wrote Sherlock. And, um, and they said, you know, the problem is... You are, people are going to be offended by this, you know, this guy in the wheelchair. And then the next incarnation was, oh, well, maybe he can walk, and Lou doesn't realise. <laughs> and then it became like pantomime, which was, I would be in the background getting up and walking. And then it gave this whole story of like, well, why? If he can walk, why is he not, why is he not walking? Why is he not doing things for himself? Is he lazy? What's his deal? And we've never really found out. But <laughs> I like to think, in my, in, my, in my head, I always imagined that Andy, my character, was injured and needed help. And Lou was his helper. And then gradually he got better, but was enjoying <laughs> being looked after and then just never thought to mention that he could now walk. Um, but it's interesting that the things we were doing would often 
sort of make a big jump from first draft to second draft. And another example of this is we watched this documentary uh, uh, directed by uh, Martin Parr, who's a great um, photographer. You should check out his photographs. He was a big influence on, on Little Britain and on, on the type of characters we portrayed. And he had done a documentary called Think of England in which, uh, in a tent uh, in, in the home counties, two women, the types that you would see from the WI, mm. were uh, judging a cake-making contest at a fete. <laughs> And they were really enjoying, there was two of them, and one was, <coughs> you know, really enjoying um, marking some up and some down. And there was a slight sense that maybe she, was, she knew some of these people, and so, and, and, and therefore she was, you know, she had her favourites. But just generally, she was really enjoying the power. And so we wrote a sketch, really based on those two women, but as if... Uh, they would enjoy the cakes, but as soon as they found out that they were made by a member of a minority, then they would mark them down, because this is not the sort of uh, part of town where we like people mm. like that, right? Mm. Um, and so, you know, no more lesbian jam, please. Uh, and then it was only in the second draft that David said, I think she should projectile vomit every time she eats something. So it's interesting to do rewrites are what really yeah, yeah. often transform a show. Um, and how and quickly would it take you to, to write a, a series then? Because obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's an intense process. It's just the, the two of you sort of in a room, I'm guessing, together, just yep. throwing ideas around. Ten till five, uh, Monday to Friday, mm. sat opposite each other. Um, me typing, because I was faster. Um, and just slogging through. Uh, I, I, uh, mm, we write a lot. I mean, and we wrote at least twice as much as you saw in the show. Mm. Um, we would film a good deal more than you'd see. Um, but we knew the hit rate wasn't as, you know, it looks higher than it actually is, you know. Um, probably about six, seven months. Okay. And then, yeah. you know, rehearsals, making the show, editing the show, gives you about a month, and then you're straight back on again. And it's like childbirth, you know. You want to strangle each other, <laughs> and then the show comes out, and people like it, or enough people like it. And then you forget about the pain and you just, you just start again. And you say in the book the real joy of Little Britain was when you went on the road with it and, and toured yeah, I think for so, a long, because, long time. Yeah, because it was, it was weird. We, we, we first worked together doing, uh, 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 doing shows at the Edinburgh Festival. And I think we thought, cause especially because our stuff was so rude, mm. that we were basically going to be a live act that played the Edinburgh Festival to 100, 150 people a night if we were lucky. And that's what we do. And then, then we did this series on Paramount and then Rock Profile and Little Britain. And, and, and we realised, oh, we haven't actually done a stage show for eight years. And we should probably do something about this. And, and we did a few gig. We did one gig, a charity uh, gig at the Royal Albert Hall at the peak of Little Britain. Mm. And it was Steve Coogan was doing Alan Partridge and Ricky Gervais was on. And I think maybe Russell Brand and... Uh, and and it, was a, it was a great night, and we did four sketches, and the audience really, were, you know, really went wild. And, um, and we thought, oh, we should, we, should do, we should do a stage tour. And that's where the show really came alive, because we had done so much live work together. And we had worked together for so long. We'd, we'd worked together for 13, well, for over 10 years by the time our tour started. So mm. we just knew each other, and we could finish, finish each other's sentences. And that chemistry, I think, really came came across on stage, and we would improvise and muck about and be quite self-referential. And just our general wonder at the way our lives were changing, we, we started out in a 1400-seater, 
and we finished playing to 14,000 people a night, mm. uh, and in Australia, and we played to over 800,000 people. Incredible. And yeah. yeah, so and and we never did another tour actually after that. That was our that was our one tour. Yeah, well, you couldn't beat the fact the real Dennis Waterman coming on stage, could you? That was uh, that's career my career favorite. highlight. Yeah, that's my fa- probably my favorite moment of my career. Poor Dennis Waterman, <laughs> he doesn't deserve that. <laughs> Write the film tune, sing the film tune. Yeah, and then he came and performed with but us he, one But night. he got the yeah. joke, and he, he went with it, I guess, yeah? Yeah, he didn't yeah. have much choice, did he, by then? <laughs> I think every, every single person in the country would go, Hello, Dennis! <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but he was very gracious and great, and has a great pair of lungs on him. You know, he, he belted out, I could be so good for you, and, uh, yeah, I, w- I loved that moment. Which yeah. he didn't write. No, he didn't <laughs> write, I could be so good for you. That's true, that's true. Thanks, everyone, for well, coming. I was and say, I please thank, thank Mr. You. Matt Lucas. And also, don't forget, there's signing books down in the bookshop right after this, so buy and your book for Christmas. And thank you very much to Robert, who's a great writer in his own right, and thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.